Goes Mainstream Podcast. On today's episode, we have Shil Mona, the co-founder and partner of FinTech VC fund Better Tomorrow Ventures. Shil is a career FinTech investor and operator. He's built Better Tomorrow Ventures into an active pre-seed and seed stage FinTech VC that's grown to over $225 million in AUM. Prior to founding BTV, he was the GP at 500 FinTech, where he was the first institutional investor in the likes of Albert, Kin, Indio, Chipper Cash, Ethic, and others. He was also an early investor in Stripe and Flexport. He also co-founded two fintech startups, B-Fighters, which was acquired by Groupon, and Innovative Auctions. Sheila and I had a fascinating conversation about the evolution of fintech, how to build and scale an emerging manager VC, and why smaller VC funds can outperform. Unfortunately, we didn't have a chance to discuss his experience of his Taco Bell wedding in the metaverse, but congratulations, Sheila, on your marriage and wishing you happiness in both life and in the metaverse. Thanks, Shield, for coming on the Elko's Mainstream Podcast to share your wisdom and experience. If you like this podcast, you can listen or read more about alts by subscribing at alcosmainstream.substack.com. Shield, welcome to the Elko's Mainstream Podcast. Thanks so much for having me. I've been following along your progress and we've been friends for a while. So pretty cool that I get to be on it. Oh, excited to have you on. There's a lot of cool things to talk about with what you've done in the venture world, in the startup world as well. You have some companies in the alt space, so I want to get to that. But where I want to start is, say I'm an LP. If you're pitching me on BTV, how do you pitch me on BTV and what are your differentiators? I'd say like I pitch LPs on how we think we're best positioned to be the founder's first choice if they are starting a company. What I always tell founders, and this is what I've always told founders before I was a VC, is at seed stage, you choose the investors that you feel most comfortable with and are going to help you build the business. And it could be former founders, operators, could be people you just have a connection with and you won't mind calling with good news or with really bad news. We try to be that for founders and Myself and Jake and other members of our team are former founders in the fintech category. That also means that in fintech, we can be an extension of the team. We can help with a lot of things that a generalist VC might have a tougher time helping with, like regulatory stuff, partnership stuff that we've been through before. Almost anything that a fintech company has to go through if we haven't been through it ourselves, like somebody in our portfolio has, and we can be really helpful. So that's typically what we sell to founders. And it resonates really well. I would say it's fairly rare that we lose if we're in the ballpark on price. And sometimes we win even if we're not in the ballpark on price. I think you hit on something that's a really important concept that many investors strive to be or say they are, which is we want to be the first call for founders. What is it in your mind 
that an investor needs to have as either a skill set or experiences. You've been a founder, you ran an accelerator that enable you to be the first call. I actually think it's none of those things to start with. I think it's genuinely caring about people and caring about the business. Being the founder's first call is just like listening. It's like more of a psychologist thing than anything else. And of course, yes, having been a previous founder helps means they take your advice more seriously. But most of these companies are more successful than any of my companies ever were. So it's not like my advice is I've done everything that you're facing. So listen to me. That's not it at all. It's listen to me because I want to help you and I can talk you through it and maybe help you come to a better decision. So on this point, I want to unpack that a little bit because on another of our friends' podcasts, Samir Kaji's podcast, you recently talked about the difference between alpha and beta in venture and how now alpha is going to be what is created in a time where it's harder to build and run a company. Valuations are different than they were a few years ago. So in the context of what you said about now investors are going to have to be people who figure out how to create alpha, how does that relate to what you're saying around, particularly at Seed, of spending time with companies, really helping them build their businesses, be the first call, being the psychologist? I think there's this notion that VCs don't add any value. And to a large extent, that's true. But I do think there are areas that we can be really helpful. Like one is hiring. Two is sales and customer intros. Three is like business development. And then raising the next round. We set out to be world-class in those things. And it really helps that we're fintech focused because if we weren't fintech focused, it'd be a lot harder for us to be the best at a particular thing for a fintech founder. An example is hiring. We knew that in our own lives as founders, and then what we see in our portfolio, hiring is the number one challenge that a lot of our CEOs have. When we started out, we spent a lot of time doing it. And then we realized, hey, we are actually not the best people to do this. So for a seed stage fund relatively early on, we brought on a full-time recruiter talent partner. And he was head of talent at NerdWallet, which my co-founder Jake founded. So we know him really well. Actually, the way this happened is kind of fun. We were bugging him all the time to interview people for us to say, hey, we're talking to this person about being our head of talent. Will you interview them for us? And then he'd give us amazing feedback. But then finally, one day we were like, hey, man, we're hoping to find someone that's like you And so we keep on sending these candidates, can we just hire you instead? And eventually over a series of time, we ended up getting to hire him. So that's recruiting. Being focused on fintech means that Yoni, our head of talent, can meet everyone who's leaving a top company and just spend time with them, put them into our portfolio. And I think that's a real superpower that has been really helpful. We talked about sales and business development. I think because all we do is fintech, like last week, I went on a ski trip with 20 CEOs of top companies. Some of them are public companies. Some of them are going to be public companies, all fintech companies. And several of them 
are already now engaged in conversations with companies in our portfolio who want to sell to them. I went on this awesome three-day ski trip, but on the lift, I was like, well, tell me about your problems with fraud. <laughs> and it's super cool. And then the third thing is helping raise the next round. And I think, again, because of our focus, we can be really instrumental because we know pretty much everyone who invests in fintech at Series A and B. We have relationships with them. We've invested together before. That's really helpful. They pretty much always take our call or take a meeting with our founders. And I think that goes a long way. So the last point is something I think is really important in today's world, both from the GP and LP perspective, which is being sector focused and being deeply embedded in the industry from a knowledge perspective and from a network perspective. You know all the right people to talk to and call. There's a benefit to being a specialist firm because why? I think all the reasons I mentioned, but being a specialist also means that in picking the company, I will have seen all the companies that came before it and I'll know what didn't work and what did work and can advise. And then also I think at seed, people tend to choose a specialist over a generalist. At the series A, in most funds now, pretty much all funds have somebody who's specialized on FinTech. So what in your mind were the reasons why LPs committed to a specialist-focused fund? First of all, I'll say we started raising in the end of 2019. And a lot of folks told us no right at the beginning. Like, we don't think the world needs a fintech-focused fund. And what about Ribbit? They have great performance in QED, too. They were kind of like, yeah, but it's seed. You guys, we don't know if we want to invest in a fintech-focused fund. Over time, we were able to convince them. So our fundraise took about almost 11 months um, from start to finish. And a lot of folks who told us no at the beginning ended up coming in ultimately. And they said, okay, you know what? We like you guys enough that we'll take a flyer. So they all wrote us like very small checks. Funds that typically write $10 million plus dollar checks would write us a $1 to $3 million check. But they said... We don't know about fintech, but we're willing to give it a shot. We don't know about you and Jake. We don't know what the partnership's going to be like. We don't know how to underwrite that. And then they said, we don't know if you guys are going to be able to lead rounds. You guys have done a lot of smaller check investing, but you haven't led rounds before. Will founders choose you? Those are the things people didn't know. Ultimately, they got comfortable with each of them. But on the piece of specialist fund, some LPs just had a strict rule that they don't do specialist funds. And I think over the past few years, that has loosened up. It's a really interesting question to unpack. Has that loosened up because there's so much value created in the sector that is fintech? Or is that loosened up in part because your portfolio is an example of this, that fintech is more than just financial services. FinTech is quote unquote everything in a sense. You have a logistics business in your portfolio. You have a hotel booking and management system in your portfolio. What's the thought process there? Yeah, that's a good point. You could make the case that FinTech sort of underlies a lot of businesses. If you look, I think realistically, a quarter of the software tech businesses that get funded probably fit in our purview we would be open to investing in them. And as you nailed it, we have logistics businesses in our portfolio. We have B2B SaaS companies in our portfolio. We have B2B marketplaces in our portfolio. A lot of these companies have what it takes to be a fintech company. 
And if you look at many of the successes of the past decade, Shopify and Toast being very notable, they did not start out as fintech companies, but really how they make most of their money is fintech. Do you think that most of the founders know that they are going to be fintech companies when they start? Or is that something that when you get involved very early on, you have to convince them of why they may be a fintech company in the future and why you should therefore be involved? It's a fun question because I immediately can think of both cases. I do think in some of these businesses, we want to make sure that they nail the core product before they get into fintech. The reason for that is, let's say you're B2B marketplace and over time, you add payments and lending, maybe payments from day one, but you don't want to be a lender from day one because then you don't know if people are choosing you because you're a lender or people are choosing you because you have a great marketplace. We like to always tell people to layer in fintech over time. And it's typically not something that happens between the seed and the A in many cases. That's an interesting point. And we've experienced this similarly. I think the best example that I have in our cases are now Ports and Covey, where we're not fintech companies, but have become them. The question I would have with that, though, is you're this sector expert. You're pitching both GPs and LPs on being this sector expert in fintech. And then you're investing in a B2B SaaS company or a logistics company. How do you as an investor get comfortable with investing in or underwriting a business model that may be different, an industry that you may not be a sector expert in, as we talked about before? It is definitely different. And I have to say, the way we add value to these kind of companies is different. All those folks I met with last week, there isn't really a business with these vertical SaaS companies, for example. But what I'll say is, let's talk about a $1,000 revenue per customer per month vertical SaaS company and what that looks like, what we think that looks like over time. An example could be someone selling to restaurants or salons or golf courses, anything. We think that looks like a software business where you can charge $300 a month. Maybe a third or less than a third of your revenue is actually software. Now, here's how we think the rest of that goes. Let's say you're a restaurant and you're doing, I don't know, $50,000 in revenue a month. We think on that $50,000, you can make at least 300 bucks. It's like 60 basis points of that. So $300 in software, another $300 in payments. And that could be integrations with Stripe or Finex or any one of those. And then we think there's an opportunity in financial services. There are opportunities in lending, in cards, and you can integrate with a unit. On that, you might be able to make another few hundred bucks. I'll also include in that few hundred, maybe it's something like 250 on banking lending, and then another 50 in accounting. It could be like a QuickBooks built into your vertical SaaS company. And then we think there's another $100 a month you can make on payroll. And we have a portfolio company there, Salsa, that does that. If you look at this vertical SaaS company, a few years down the line, of the $1,000 a month they're making off a customer, $700 of that is actually fintech. Over time, it really becomes a fintech company. And that's the Toast and Shopify model. So is the recommendation to many of these founders solve the problem that they need to solve for the customer first? And then once you do that, you can wrap all these other financial services products around them. Exactly. Yeah. 
And how do you think about the innovations and in infrastructure that are powering that? You've invested in a number of the banking as a service plays unit is one that comes to mind and a number of other infrastructure players in the payment space. How has the innovations at the infrastructure layer that's powering a lot of these SaaS companies that you may have invested in who can then embed financial services into their businesses, how has that played a role in the growing ecosystem of fintech and capturing more and more of market share, payments volume, et cetera? It has been big. And like you said, we like this embedded thesis. So we've done unit that's a banking as a service company. We did Salsa that's payroll as a service. And we're actually thinking about incubating a company that's accounting as a service, kind of like QuickBooks as a service. And for all of them, these non-fintech companies are a big part of their business. Unit services both fintechs and non-fintechs, but the others mostly service non-fintechs. It's mostly vertical SaaS. And by the way, one interesting learning is I think what has helped Unit be the leader in that category is just making it super, super simple for a non-fintech company to become a fintech company. What that means is if you integrate with Unit, you don't have to have your own compliance team. I'm trying to think of an example that doesn't give something away too much. Let's say if you're Toast and you're thinking about adding banking services, you could go to a vendor, one of Unit's previous competitors, and they would say, okay, who's your head of compliance, da 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 all that stuff. And instead, Unit has made it simple by having their own compliance team and then also putting rules into place that make it a safer place to operate. But what that ends up meaning is, they have to turn away a ton of customers that don't meet their compliance hurdles. Uh, and I think in the short term, that looks bad. In the long term, I think it's going to be really great. You've been in fintech for, gosh, at this point, close to 20, and I don't want to date you, but close to 20 years, maybe 15 to 17 years. You've seen many iterations of fintech as a founder with Fee Fighters, Groupon, 500 startups, 500 fintech, now BTV. What is still the opportunity in fintech. Are we in the early phases of all this? Fintech's gotten so much capital plowed into the ecosystem. Where's the opportunity and what's next? I think there's a ton of opportunity. So just from a macro perspective, financial services are roughly 20% of global GDP. It's like some crazy trillions of dollars. And all of fintech, entire market cap, all the companies, Square, PayPal, et cetera, in the US is about 2% of financial services market cap. So we're relatively early. Tech is relatively early in penetrating this space. Now, there are a bunch of reasons for that. And of course, many of the incumbents are becoming more tech-friendly and tech-like. But I think we're still in the very early innings of this happening. So then you might say, okay, well, fintech companies in the public markets were down 78% last year. What the hell happened? Is it over? And I'd say, I think fintech companies disproportionately benefited from low interest rates. And the consumer fintech companies disproportionately were putting growth above everything else and not focused on profitability. And they were just doing what the market told them to do. 
So fintech was one of the most overvalued sectors in tech in 2021. I think there is a shakeout that's happening now. And a lot of these companies won't survive, unfortunately. One challenge that came with that phenomenon is everybody building the same thing. You'd see a type of company and then instantly see three or four other companies are doing the same thing, all competing for the same business. In the span of a month, we'd see four companies and we'd have to choose if we want to invest in the category or not. And we'd say, okay, well, all these companies look pretty good. So maybe we'll just stay out of the category. I think some of that shakes out and is probably good for the overall ecosystem. I'm still really bullish. I think the macro trends are all very positive for us. As I said, tech is relatively still untouched in financial services. When you're talking about something that's inherently ones and zeros, this should be all tech. And then you asked a little bit about areas that we're excited about. We tend to not be very thesis-driven. We tend to be more opportunistic, examining every company that comes forward and saying, we like it or we love the founder, et cetera. We really believe that we're in the early days. So the infrastructure players, I think, still are going to do very well. We have already talked about Embedded that we're excited about. But then also there are opportunities in underwriting, eliminating fraud, all that kind of stuff that we're really excited about. We're not big consumer investors in general. I think I've been scared off from it just my own experiences. And then in our portfolio, I feel like you're always a little bit at the mercy of performance marketing, which is a lot of money to Facebook and Google. And given the changes with Apple, it's become harder. So consumer's never been a big part of my portfolio. But when we do do consumer, we have some rules. We can break these rules. But my preference is if we're doing consumer, I want to do something where you charge the customer. If you charge the customer versus giving away for free, you really know that that customer is bought in and wants to use the product. And also, of course, it really helps with the payback period. If assuming charging doesn't keep more away from, there's obviously math around that. So we generally in consumer, we like to invest in businesses that, that charge the customer. And then the other thing is, we'd say in the first few years, we like to invest in companies that are um, only spending on performance marketing and really just building a performance marketing flywheel. You always want to go to building brand, but really in the early years, performance marketing, I think, is the way to go. In the companies we've invested in, that's been the case at least. That point, I want to unpack a little bit because in certain areas of fintech, and this is where I want to get to alts, given that this podcast is about alts to some extent. It's also about yeah. funds like yourself, where there are LPs who would invest into a fund like Better Tomorrow, but you've invested in a few alts companies that are really more or less B2B, AngelList and CapLite. And I think that space in general is interesting in the context of marketing. I've had the experience where brand building does really matter, with like an iCapital as an example. Totally. How do you unpack your comment about, we don't like to invest into companies that are focused initially on brand building, but more performance marketing from the outset when you think about something like alts where you're selling an investment product or technology to a wealth manager, high net worth, a bank, things like that? Yeah, so my comment was really specifically on consumer companies. So definitely doesn't apply to these B2B companies where I don't think performance marketing makes sense. I think sort of combination of PR, direct outreach are the best ways to go in brand building, as you said. So 
walk us through your thoughts on the alt space and why you invested in AngelList, CapLight, and what you think about the space. Yeah, maybe we can tell you a little bit about CapLight and AngelList first. I think AngelList probably people know well. CapLight probably most people don't know. CapLight is like a derivatives layer for alts starting with pre-IPO stock. So you can sort of hedge your risk to a pre-IPO company. And with these late-stage companies, investors, of course, want long and short exposure, not just long exposure, with public-like settlement, but it just doesn't exist. So CapLight has created something that we think is very interesting. It's a derivatives marketplace that you can get liquidity and hedging of private company stock. And it's a huge market, as you know. I think pre-IPO stock is $700 billion to a trillion of trading goes on in pre-IPO stock. So it's a huge number. And the fact that there's no easy way to get to hedge in that market meant that we felt like there was a huge opportunity. Philosophically, though, do you think it's a good thing that private markets will become more like public markets, potentially more liquid? I think there's a big opportunity because if you looked at these companies 10 years ago, many of the companies that are private today would have been public 10 years ago. And companies were going public with a couple hundred million dollar market cap. And now most companies are choosing to stay private a lot longer. And there's a bunch of reasons for that. So these same exact companies would have had those characteristics in an earlier era. And so we think they should have those characteristics today. That means that CEOs and management teams need to adapt to that though, right? They're no longer private market CEOs in a sense. They're somewhere in between. They're not quite public market CEOs. That's very true. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think a lot of CEOs actually do want that. Not, of course, everybody. And some people certainly fight it. But I think a lot of people do want that. And there are some benefits to the private markets that that you can have some of the benefits of being private while also getting the benefits of being public. I think there are advantages to both. So with CapLight, what made you invest in that business? I think we're really people people. So like we, in particular, Jake, so this is... My partner, Jake, spent a lot of time with the team. Jake traded derivatives before. He really understands what it takes to succeed here. Javier and Justin came from Forge, which I'm sure you guys all know, big marketplace for secondaries. And we really liked the way that they thought about this problem, their solution for it. And then we think that there's a big market here that you can go after. And it's going to take a lot of time. But we think there's a big opportunity and really like the way that they went after it. I hear you on that. If you think about derivatives in other markets, equities, the notional trade it is significantly greater than the underlying itself. So why shouldn't that be different in private markets over time, to your point? Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. I want to talk about different side of alts going mainstream, which is more the fund side of BTV. And you've done a few different things leading up to BTV. And you even mentioned today, you're thinking about incubating a company. That's more akin to what you did at 500 Startups in the accelerator model. I want to talk about fund size and strategy and the business models and fund management, because you've seen it all. And you probably have really interesting takes on what makes sense, what doesn't. Let's start with 
your fund size is your strategy. So walk us through why you've raised the fund sizes you raised and then rewind the tape on why did you do this after doing an accelerator? Well, let's start with the accelerator fund. So our fund sizes have increased quite a bit. So the first fund, 2017, $15 million fund. So that was pre-BTV. That was an accelerator-focused fund. BTV1, we started raising in December 2019. We really closed in 2020. It was $75 million. And then BTV2, it was about exactly a two-year investment period for BTV1, first checks. And we raised a new fund. And it's $150 million seed fund. And then we have a $75 million opportunity fund attached to it. In some ways, we've increased the seed fund portion 10x from 2017 to now. You're right. It does dictate the strategy. The first fund was $15 million. It was me as a GP. It was really hard raising a first-time fund. There's no reason why somebody should have trusted me with their money. Not much of a track record. I had done a bunch of angel investing, but still, those companies were early in their lifestyle, lifetime. And so it was hard. I had actually set out for, with a target of 25 and ended up raising 15. This accelerator fund, though, we had a really, really great economics. We were investing 150K for 6% of the company. And that's a $2.5 million valuation. And we got into a lot of really amazing companies, a few companies that I think will be unicorns. And we invested it at a great price. On that point, the fund math, yeah, the, the fund math works such that, say, you end up with 50% dilution, but you get to a billion-dollar outcome. Right there, you've 2x the fund, 3% billion-dollar outcome on a $15 million fund. Yes. That seems to be, assuming you can get enough good companies, that seems to be pretty good odds to play. It's really great odds to play. Now, the challenge with it is... So one, I think we got lucky on timing. We were doing this before fintech was really hot. And I think a lot of these phenomenal companies in our portfolio. So the top four or five by current valuation are Chipper Cash is an African fintech company, payments company. We have Albert, started out as a personal finance manager, became a neobank and other financial services. Kin is a homeowner's insurance company. We have a company called Ethic that I know you know well that builds product for wealth managers and is sort of in this related world. And then a company called Indio that was a business in the insurance space that actually exited, had a very early exit for a, a decent chunk of change that was able to return most of the fund from just that one exit. But those are the top five holdings and they were all at a two and a half million dollar valuation. So you can imagine that fund has been awesome. But we were lucky on timing in that a lot of these companies today wouldn't go to an accelerator. They might go to YC, but they wouldn't have gone to my accelerator. And then running accelerator is a lot of work. I think part of what made people choose us and what made us successful is we worked our asses off. I think I worked 18 hours a day every day of the week for the first couple of years. And my entire life was the accelerator. Those companies, they've all been to my house. Some of them like, slept on my couch. I spent nights at the office. It was a lot of work because I wanted to deliver an amazing experience to these founders. I knew that delivering an amazing experience would mean that in the future, I'd have my pick of companies because the early batches would tell everyone else, hey, you should do this. You got to work with these guys. 
if I'm being totally honest, I don't think I have the energy to do it right now to do something like that. But it is an incredible opportunity. And we as a fund would love to do something like that. We just need to find the right person to run it. So if somebody's listening who wants to do this, we have a playbook that has worked in the past. And I think if anything, we're better equipped today than we were then. I was really naive. Not that I'm not naive today, but I was even more naive then than I am today. What do you think made the accelerator model so successful? I chose great founders and a lot of the businesses were not businesses that you would want to invest in, but they were really exceptional founders. And what's awesome is that a two and a half million dollar valuation, you can take a flyer on an exceptional founder in a so-so business and hope that they figure it out. And those companies I mentioned, four out of five of them pivoted into what they're doing today. They started out doing something else and they pivoted into what ended up working. But it was a great founder that made it work. The other really interesting thing about that, hearkening back to what you said earlier about being very specific about investing in consumer businesses is you may not be giving yourself enough credit for being a good consumer investor because the top three companies you mentioned, Chipper, <laughs> uh, yeah. Kin, and Albert are all consumer businesses. You are, you are absolutely right. But I think I have scar tissue from them. And those are all great companies. They all have taken a lot of money to build. They've raised hundreds of millions of dollars. But, <laughs> okay, you, you make a good point. And Ethics started out as a consumer business. And, That's right, um, it did. Indio also, they started, they were going to do, not consumer, but direct to commercial, which is more similar to consumer, and then they ended up becoming B2B. So, yeah, maybe you're right. The takeaway I have from that, though, is that it's the founder that matters most. Absolutely. And that's where you index highly on. In those cases, doesn't always work out, but in those cases, it certainly did. Okay, so you did an accelerator, did very well. I think we can both agree that the smaller the fund size, assuming you get one or two outliers, you will generate strong returns. Why then go from an accelerator to a fund? So what we felt was we were investing in these companies, but we didn't really give them enough money to get as far as we wanted them to be. We were giving them 150K to start. That wasn't really enough to do anything. <laughs> as soon as we invested, they had to immediately start raising more money. That kind of sucks because a lot of what we want to help them with isn't what we get to help them with. What we get to help them with is raising more money. And so if you're an investor, why is so much of your time being spent helping your companies just raise money immediately after you invest? So we didn't like that aspect of it. We said, we want to be in a position where we can fund the company to get to the next level. And the only way that we saw to do that was to raise a bigger fund. And so we did the math on how we wanted to invest. Our initial idea was $60 million fund. We ended up going up to 75, which was our hard cap. I think like valuations had started to increase and we felt like we needed to go a little bit more. Did you do the math on $60 million fund or a $75 million fund? We did the math on a $60 million fund. And then what happened is we thought at the beginning of pandemic that valuations would come down. Now that's the opposite of what happened. So by the time we closed the fund, which was, I believe, August of 2020, valuations started to increase. And so we had hit our target of 60 and then 
it was a little bit of a fuzzy thing, which when you raise a fund, there are people who have committed to you who actually never end up coming in. So we were like, we hit our 60 and then we were like, maybe we'll have a few more conversations. All those conversations ended up being relatively large checks. All of a sudden we were oversubscribed and we were like, well, maybe some of these folks are going to back out. So that number was a bit fuzzy, especially when you're raising a first time fund. A lot of people backed out after telling you they're in and it kind of sucks. But in the end, we were fortunate that we got to 75. And I think we led 22 investments from that fund. And that was what we said we were going to do. We said we were going to do about 10 lead checks a year. And that fund was a little bit more than two years. So 22 was kind of spot on. That was an average first check of, I think, $1.1, million, an average post-money valuation of, I think, $10.7 million was fund one. We were relatively disciplined on entry point. Then what happened was 2021, things got crazy. So even though we were disciplined on entry point, in the most crazy case, the next round was 15 times the seed valuation. And that's just nuts. That's great for your initial position. That's probably very hard for your pro rata. Yeah. It's, so a lot of people are like, congratulations. And I'm like, no, that's not how we think about it at all. I don't want that because... In many cases, that means the company's spending a lot more money than they should be given the traction. And also, to your point, like I want to invest in that round. If the company's doing well, I want to buy up ownership in that round. And when this happened, a company went from eight and a half million posts, relayed the seed to 125 or 127, I think, like less than six months later. That's not fun for me. That's not what I want. There are cases in which I think that could be the best thing for the company. We help the company raise the money. We do whatever it takes to get what is best for the company. We choose the best partner, not necessarily we choose the highest price. Sometimes those are hand in hand, sometimes they're not. How did the experience you had over the past year and a half with round sizes, rejiggering ownership, et cetera, factor into how you thought about your second fund? which is, I think you said 150 million or so with a $75 million opportunity fund. One thing we felt in the first fund was we were leading rounds and usually there's a bunch of folks who came after us in the companies. And usually it was pretty easy once we decided to lead, it was very easy for the companies to raise the rest. And a lot of times they raised the money from folks who are bigger name funds. In one case, we led a round and then there were four other funds, good name funds, Best Summer Foundation, a bunch of other funds that followed on after us, writing relatively small checks. Then over the course of the next year and a half, two years, as the founders build a business, we're the ones that are spending all the time with the founder. And you ask them, how often do you talk to those guys? They're like, well, not really. We don't really talk to them that much. So then what's the point of having that guy on your cap table? So then we said, maybe it makes sense for us to have more ownership. We're putting in a lot of time, be a part of what we do with founders, part of why people choose us is because of our time. So if we're putting in a lot of time on these companies, then we should take more ownership up front. We went from 10% average in fund one to now we're shooting for 15%. We don't always get it, but I think we're probably not far from it. On that point, 15% is a decent ownership size. Yep. There's probably companies that don't fit into those parameters because of how much they want to raise totally. or valuation that they want or you want, and you just can't square the circle on the spread between what you and the founders want. 
You mentioned earlier that fund one, investors were concerned whether or not you could go from accelerator to fund and could you get the amount of ownership you wanted, all that kind of stuff, and actually lead deals. Because you were jumping in ownership from roughly 10 to roughly 15 in fund two on a percentage basis, did fund two LPs ask that same question that many people asked at fund one? Can you win these deals? Nobody. Nobody did. It never came up, really. There's a variety of reasons, but I think the main one is we were raising a peak market. And I think people were excited about what we built. And there was a lot of interest in our fund. I think we really got lucky on that. So I don't think that question came up. And I do want to say something to clarify that 15% is we have had great partners alongside us writing smaller checks, yourself being one of them. We do still allow for that. We have taken our ownership down to make room for people that we think are great partners with us. Now, that makes total sense in terms of constructing the right cap table. It sounds like that's what you're really after as you think about fund size, amount of ownership, what an outcome could look like. Is there a right size fund for your strategy of relatively high ownership, very high involvement, especially early on? You know, I think where we're at today, 150 plus the 75, I think is a good size. We haven't really talked about what the next fund looks like. We're early still. It's been a year. I guess we've been deploying for just over a year in this fund. We've deployed less than 20%. I think we'll start to think about fund three over the course of the next year and start raising probably Q2, Q3, 24. But I don't think we're going to have a massive jump again because I don't want to get rich off of management fees. That's not the business that we're in. When Jake and I started this, we told ourselves that from day one. And we actually don't advertise this, but we don't take full fees. You just did advertise? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's true. I don't think we've ever said it publicly. We have the ability to take two and a half percent, but we actually call a lot less management fees. We'd rather have more capital to invest. It makes our lives easier because what we're really in this business for is carry. If instead of taking two percent, if we take one percent off fifteen million dollar fund over the course of 10 years, that's an extra $15 million to deploy. And we'd rather do that. We'll say another piece that I found interesting from other things you've said in the past and on Samir's podcast is you've clearly done right by your partners because many of those smaller checks in fund one, which is a really interesting point, I think, for a lot of first-time fund managers here, especially in a tougher fundraising market where it's going to take longer to deploy, is that you took a lot of smaller checks, those checks upsized in fund two. So you definitely did something right by your partners, both in terms of returns, but also it sounds like in terms of how you're treating them and what the goal is as an investor, that it's for the returns, not for the management fees. Totally. And I think that was our ethos from day one. And I think everybody in the company, everybody in our fund, the people that we've hired are all aligned on that. We also have shared carry with everyone at the fund, which not everybody does, but we felt was important for what we're building. On this point, you've obviously, on the path to building a firm, you haven't just built a fund, but yet it's only been a few years. So you're still close enough to being a first-time or emerging manager that your advice would be interesting for many first-time fund managers. But what's the most non-obvious piece of advice you'd give to a first-time fund manager? One thing that worked for us when we were getting started is close whatever you can and start investing and then figure it out over time. I think for us, that worked really well. Uh, A lot of people 
say, I want to raise the whole fund and then start investing. But for us, doing both simultaneously was good. The other thing people told us was, as you mentioned, in fund one, we had a lot of small checks from bigger funds. We had Greenspring, Industry, Invesco, Vintage, Sindana, all wrote us way smaller checks than they typically write. And people had given us the advice, don't take their small checks. And we were like, whatever, we need the money. (laughs) So we took them. And we're so happy we did because they all became big investors in fund two. Every fundraising environment is unique. Every fundraise is unique. Every family office is different. There are some things that apply universally, but not a whole lot. The main thing is you got to make people believe. It was tough for us at the beginning. <laughs> like It was really hard. But I think by fund two, we had a lot of luck on our side. And that made things easier. Another piece that's really interesting is your distribution through social media that may or may not be related to this. I'd be curious to hear your views, but you have almost 80,000 Twitter followers. You've been active on social media. I believe you've been in the New York Times. You just produced a movie (laughs) and was in a movie. So all these things may not be necessarily directly related to everything you're doing, but in a world where connectivity, content, distribution all matter, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's really funny. A lot of people noticed that I started getting more active on Twitter when we started this fund. And they were like, is that related? Are you doing that to get LPs? I was like, no. If I was telling people to buy a bidet, do I think that is what LPs want to hear? No, I don't think it's for that at all. It's just I'm having fun and being myself because I don't know how else to do it. It's been really fun and rewarding. I do think there have been benefits to being a more public person, but it has not been intentional. Uh, And the benefits have been, I'll give you one fun example. There's a company I wanted to invest in. I read about them. They weren't really responding to investors. And I reached out and I had just posted a picture in response to a picture of Chamath with the shirt off. I had posted a picture of myself with my shirt off. My body is not necessarily the most aesthetically pleasing one out there. Uh, but these guys immediately responded with, Hey, we should definitely talk. I think we have the same workout regimen or something like that. And we ended up investing in the company and that helped. So I think these things have all sorts of weird benefits, but it's been fun. I'd say number one thing for me is it has been fun and it's been what I want to be doing. And so I, I don't often let work seriousness get in the way. People are now going to ask what your workout regimen is after this, (laughs) especially VCs. Well, I'm getting married this year. So hopefully my workout regimen is a really intense one. But as of now, it's, I try to walk a lot. Any founders who want to help Shiel with his workout regimen should get in touch with him and then he can invest in their company and then they can get a workout regimen for Shiel. So it sounds like there's a good trade here. Final question that I ask every guest on the podcast. What is your favorite or most interesting alternative investment? Ooh, okay. My most interesting alternative investment is in domain names. One of my companies was in the domain space. We auctioned domains. And so I have owned some domains and even owned a domain that was leased to a startup And that is a real alternative investment that I think is kind of fun. That's fascinating. We're going to need to unpack that on another episode because there are now domains businesses in the crypto space, unstoppable domains being one of them. You can sell domains. There's probably a a fun strategy around that. Absolutely. There is. Let's talk about that later. That's a topic for the next show. Shiel, 
Thanks so much for coming on the Alco's Mainstream Podcast. It's been fun. Always fun to chat, but this is great. Likewise. Awesome to have you on. See you later, Shield. Thanks for listening to this episode of Alco's Mainstream. I hope you enjoyed it. You can find more episodes of the podcast at any of your favorite podcast sites, and you can read more about alts at my Substack, altgoesmainstream.substack.com, and follow me on Twitter at, at Michael Stigmore and at GoesAlt. Thanks a lot, and have a great day. We're going main-